song, isn't it? My faith has found a resting place. I hope yours has. Uh, I really do. As Pat was playing that, and I'm, I am so thankful for our instrumentalists. Um, Pat's over here. Roger's playing over there by himself tonight, holding down the fort. I appreciate him doing that. Um, I'm thankful for those who use their talents like that. You know, with God moving, Daniel and Hannah, we're losing one of our piano players in Hannah. Uh, she's a beautiful piano player. And um, you may be sitting on that talent, and you, don't, you didn't let us know about that. But if you play the piano, um, I'd like you to talk to me about that. If you can play for, maybe you've played in the past for congregational music. And I've had some people say, you know, I've never played in such a big church. This is not a big church. It really isn't. And we're just family here. Um, so if they'll, uh, if they'll let me sing in the choir, they'll let you play the piano. And so if you know how to play the piano, and maybe that's something God's enabled you to do for congregational music, come talk to me. We'd, we'd work into that rotation. Um, but I, I really do appreciate Pat and Angie and Dinah and Hannah and, and all the instrumentalists that play over here. I think that's a... I think you ought to be using those talents for the Lord. I, I've shared with you before, the best place you can do those, th- you can use those things is, it, is in the arena of the local church. Um, whether it's a musical ability or a teaching ability or an administrative ability, your spiritual gifts and talents were meant to glorify God, and it's a great place to use them. So uh, we started this series this morning, and it's a brief series. I mean, compared to Ephesians, which I think we went 52, 52 messages in Ephesians, didn't we? Uh, Revelation was 49 messages. This whole series is going to be like five. Uh, And we're going to cover them on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights. And I've entitled the series, Can God? Because a lot of people have questions about God's ability to do these things. And maybe not in here. Uh, On this particular message tonight, can God keep you saved? I'd like to look at this message tonight as more of a teaching opportunity. Because this question comes up a lot. I don't know how much you get... Uh, how, how much involved you get with opportunities to talk to people about religious things. I know we're not supposed to talk about religion and politics, everybody says. I would talk about your religion. If, you, if you've got it, talk about it. Share it. Um, if you've got the right religion, and I've heard people say, and Christians will say things like, well, religion, you know, it's not really all that good. Oh, sure it is. The Bible talks about pure religion. If it's the right religion, if it's based in Jesus Christ and it's pointing people to salvation by grace through faith, talk about it. Um, and if it ruffles some feathers, good. Jesus said when he came, I, I didn't come bringing peace, I came bringing a sword. We're going to divide some people over this. The gospel is very, div- it's very divisive. I mean, it's exclusive. We live in a world where everybody, everybody it's, an, it's a great thought, isn't it? Well, as long as you're worshiping something... Everything goes to the same place. Well, that's a wonderful thought. It's just, it's just not true. It doesn't work like that. And so this is one of those topics where it's good for you and I to know why we believe what we believe. A lot of people will say, I believe once you're saved, you're always saved. But if they're asked to defend that, if they're asked for an apology or a defense of that doctrine, maybe they struggle with that. Well, this is one of those things that we should talk about tonight. So this series, Can God, uh, this morning, that was our sermon title as well. But from here on out, we're going to be specific on things. Can God do this? One of those questions is, can God keep you saved? I'd like you to turn, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is the last letter that we know Paul wrote, at least his last inspired letter. Um, and we're going to look at one verse in here, and we'll look at several other verses as well. But in chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul makes a very bold statement about his salvation. He says in this verse that he is confident that his salvation is eternal in nature. And once I start reading this verse, you're going to say, oh, you know what, I forgot the address of that verse, but I know that verse. Look at that, would you, Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 12. He says, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. That's at least the second time in his writings Paul has said, I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That last part of that verse, Paul is making this statement that my salvation is It's really eternal in nature. That's what he's saying. But is it? 
Is his salvation, is your salvation eternal in nature? Here's the question. Is salvation something we can count on or is it something that we really just hope will work out for us in the end? Now, before you nod your head one way or another on that, may I tell you that most people in the world are in that second part of that question. There's hope and it works out. You know how I know? You'll ask people this question. May May I ask you this question? If you died tonight, do you know that you'd go to heaven? Do you know how many people will say, boy, I hope so? They're in the second part of that question. They have nothing to do with 2 Timothy 1.12 where Paul's got this rock-solid assurance. So here's the question we're going after tonight. Can a Christian truly have absolute assurance that they're saved? Can the Christian be sure that he or she will never be lost again? Is there anything we can do that would cause Jesus to take away our salvation or that we can do or reject to lose that salvation? Is it possible for us to decide, meh, I don't want to be a Christian anymore? Josh Harris thinks there is. You know who Josh Harris was? You remember Josh Harris? Years ago, he wrote a book that exploded onto the scene. The book was called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And uh, boy, that, that sold, I, don't, I started to say millions, maybe not. I know it sold into the hundreds of thousands of copies. Later, he wrote a book called Stop Dating the Church. And it was a really good book. And I, I read that book. I thought, boy, that's, that's a good book. And then later, he decided he was no longer a Christian, that Christianity was bogus, and he wasn't going to have anything to do with it. And he walked right away from it. So there are those that believe you can just walk away from it. Is it possible for us to decide we don't want to be a Christian anymore and then lose our salvation that way? So the question is, can God keep you saved? And most people will say, no, he can't. Most religions hold the view that people can turn away from God and go to, to, uh, from being saved to again being lost. And in fact, we just... We just celebrated the start of the Protestant Reformation. You know that? Are you aware of that? October 31st, not Halloween. It's the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Did you know that most Protestant denominations teach you can lose your salvation? The large majority of them. We could start listing those things. I won't tonight, but we can start listing the denominations that do not hold to the, the doctrine of eternal security. Most of them uh, are, are wrapped up in that. That's one aspect, I should say, of the Arminian theology. One aspect, if you, you hear that, that terminology, Arminian uh, versus Reformed or versus Calvinism, they put those two against each other. One aspect of Arminian theology is that you can lose, you can do something by act or by choice that will cause you to lose your salvation or that you can reject it. That view of salvation is based on a faulty understanding of the scriptures. We believe that once salvation has been granted by God, it cannot be taken away and it cannot be lost. But there are millions of people that don't hold to that. They, they wonder, can God really keep me saved? We believe that the scripture teaches once a person has been saved by grace, they are forever saved and nothing can change that fact. We believe that people are saved by choosing to accept the invitation of God to be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Remember our our look at the end of Revelation. The spirit says come, the bride says come, let him that is a thirst come. But once you answer that invitation, once you are genuinely saved, at that moment you are instantly and eternally changed and adopted into the family of God. We believe the believer is declared righteous through justification and that that eternal life is a present and eternal possession. Once you get it, 
It's yours. You've been born into the family of God. You have been adopted into the family of God. And if you have been saved, it is impossible for you to be lost or to go to hell. So what do you do with people that were in this church and they were in that church? And boy, they looked like they were on fire for God. And today, they're just, they're, they're totally away. They reject God and reject everything else. One of two things has happened. Either that person is in, a, is in a deep, backslidden state, and if he or she is there, they will know the chastening of God because Hebrews 12 promises us, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. That's not a principle. That's a promise. If he loves you and you're saved and you step away from him, he will chasten you. He's motivated by his love. Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me. The love of Christ is aggressive. He comes after us. So either that person is very backslidden and experiencing or will experience the chastening of God, or it's a First John kind of situation. They went out from us because they never were part of us. I was talking to somebody recently, and I've used this before in relation, uh, in relation to people who had questions about, about someone. That, that parable of the sower, the, the seed, uh, which is the gospel, Jesus says, is sown on four different types of soil. And on one of those, the stony ground... All of a sudden, the seed gets sown, and here comes a little plant sprouts up. And that farmer's just like, oh, man, this is going to be great. And that plant starts, and it sprouts up. Then all of a sudden, the Bible says the sun comes out, and it burns that thing up. And it withers away and dies. And you're like, well, what happened? There was, there was the appearance of life there. We thought there was life there. We, we thought it was going well. No, there was the appearance of it, but it didn't have any root Jesus said that in order for me to have eternal life, I need to, he's the vine and my branch needs to be connected to him. And sometimes there's an appearance of life that's not genuine life. It's going gonna, it's gonna to dry up and fade away. I don't know how long that process takes for that life to look like there's spiritual life there and then all of a sudden we find it may take years for us to determine, you know what, there never was really genuine salvation there. There are people who are going to die that everybody thinks that person is saved. There are people who are going to die thinking they're saved, and they're going to show up at the great white throne judgment saying, Lord, we did many wonderful works in thy name. They thought they were saved, and they weren't. Can God keep someone saved once they make a profession of faith, once God asks them to save them? And he does. Can God keep him saved? This group says no. This group says absolutely. So who's right in all that? Can salvation be lost like the majority of Protestant religions teach? Or is salvation once gained an eternal possession that come hell or high water cannot be lost, taken away, or rejected? Well, I'm in that second boat. I believe that once you are saved, nothing you do and nothing Satan does and nothing this world does can take away that salvation. You've been born into a family. You've got God's spiritual DNA now, and you can't change it. You've been adopted, you've been born. So can God really keep you saved? My answer from the outset is what? God can. God can. Can he do this? Yes, he can. So I want to start tonight looking at this, um, and hopefully, like I said, this is hopefully going to be more of a teaching thing, and so we're strengthened in uh, this idea of eternal security so that when, like Peter said, that when someone asks us about this, we're ready to give an answer and not just an opinion, but we can go to the scriptures and say, well, let's see what God has to say about it. Since he's the author of salvation, what does God say about that salvation? Not what Arminius says about it, not what John Calvin says about it. What does God say about it? Let's go see what the Bible says and we'll go from there. And I hope to strengthen your hand tonight talking about our friend Paul And looking at his life, we're going to start with his conversion and then go into what he's saying here in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I know whom I've believed. And I I firmly trust that what I've committed to him, he's going to keep it till that day. What was it that he trusted to God? His soul. And he's saying, I believe God can keep it. So let's get into this. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. I almost almost got ahead of myself. Let's not do that. Let's start tonight talking about Paul's conversion. And you're familiar with that when Paul accepted Jesus Christ. um, Paul got saved there on the Damascus Road. What an incredible experience he had. I remember Pastor Cross, who used to pastor here before I did, he used to say, uh, Paul was gloriously saved 
And by the way, all of us have been gloriously saved. Now, I didn't get knocked off a horse, and neither did you probably, but the fact is you experienced the same glorious salvation. Uh, I appreciated David Cross saying that often. He would say that, and, and he'd say, the truth is all of us have been gloriously saved, and that is absolutely true. Paul's a wonderful demonstration of it because of the manner in which he was saved. But let's look at Paul's conversion and what happened to him, and then we'll come and see why is he so convinced that he's got that salvation forever. So let's start with that. Paul's conversion, first of all, it involved a person. It involved a person, capital P. It says there in verse number 12, For I know whom I have believed. There was a person involved in this. He's saved on his way. And if you want to read about that, you can go back and read Acts chapter number 9. That's where Paul is on his way on the Damascus Road. And he's on his way to persecute um, Christians. He's very highly educated. He's... Uh, very accepted in the Jewish world, and he has been uh, he has been uh, authorized to go and persecute the church, and that's what he's doing. Highly educated um, by the world's estimation, as far as the Jewish world went, Paul was a pretty holy man. When the Jews thought about Paul, um, his name was Saul back then. When they thought of Saul of Tarsus, they thought of him as a very holy man. He said in Philippians chapter 3, he said, talking about his, his pre-salvation life, he described, it like, he described himself like this, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I mean, when the Jews thought of Saul of Tarsus, when they thought of that rabbi, when they thought of that Pharisee, they thought, now boy, there is a holy guy. But the truth is, Righteousness in the law is never going to give somebody salvation. Paul didn't know that, but he, he learned it in Acts chapter number 9. What it took was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why he says in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, I know what I have believed. You can know a lot of doctrine. You, know, you, you may know a lot more doctrine than I do. You may know a lot more doctrine than most people do. But that's not going to get you salvation. It's about whom Paul believed. That's the way conversion happens for everybody. You remember what Paul asked him when he got knocked off that horse, that bright light came down. Paul gets knocked off that horse. And do you remember his question? There's a tell in that question that Paul knew exactly who he was talking to. You remember the question? Who art thou, Lord? Now, if he didn't know who he was, he'd have just said, hey, who are you? But he didn't. Who art thou, capital L, Lord? He knew who he was talking to. And he knew he was in trouble. Paul's Paul's conversion took place because he had a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, Paul realized all his good works and all all his wonderful deeds and all his knowledge that he had of Old Testament theology... All of that did not matter. It did not get him saved one bit. In fact, all it did was condemn him because he knew the law. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament better than most people. All that did was condemn him, though. It took a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Salvation is the result of a personal relationship with Christ. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, 1 John chapter 5 And verse 12, no amount of goodness, as touching the law blameless, no amount of goodness is going to save him. No amount of education, as far as being a Pharisee, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, Paul said. It didn't matter how many degrees he had, he wasn't saved. Not his deeds, not his education. It took a personal relationship with Christ. So his conversion, first of all, it involved a person. Second, it involved a plan. Paul says that his conversion was the result of believing. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you remember those verses. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Simple faith in Jesus Christ. He was saved, he was converted, he was justified, whatever word you want to plug in, born again. He was saved because he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it says in John 3.16. Arguably the most well-known verse in the world. Whosoever believeth on him. It's about a plan. 
of literally about a plan of salvation. It's about putting our faith in Christ. Salvation is only received through faith in him. What is faith? Let's let's just pause before we go on. Because you're going to get asked that question at some point. You get into a discussion with someone. You talk about why you're saved by faith. Well, what is faith? Faith is complete confidence or trust or reliance. It's, It's like, I believe that chair can hold me up. I believe that chair right there will hold me up. How do, I, how do I prove that I believe that chair holds me up? I go sit in it. I can talk about that chair all day. I can tell you about the structure of that chair, the thickness of its legs, the design, the engineered design of that chair. It's made to hold up a person that will go up to X number of pounds. I can talk to you about that chair all day, but I prove my faith in it by sitting in that chair. I prove my confidence in Christ by putting my faith in him for my eternal destiny. So in regard to salvation, in in regard to God, faith means having total trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of my soul. Really, the faith that I have in Christ has nothing to do with my earthly life. My faith in him regards, first of all, my eternal life. Because honestly... My faith in Christ doesn't fully protect me from the suffering and the struggle and the pains and the sorrows of this world. But I'm, I'm, my faith in him for salvation, I'm looking beyond this life. So Paul's conversion, it, it not only involved a person, the Lord Jesus, but it involved a plan, and that plan was putting my faith in him. It's always based on faith in Christ, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's based on a person. It's based on a plan. But I want you to know, too, his his salvation, his conversion, was based on a permanence. A permanence. Did you notice that phrase in verse number 12? We're doing most of our look tonight at, at, first, or at 2 Timothy 1.12. He says in that verse, I know whom I have believed... Note those three words, I have believed. That little phrase in the Greek tense is written in what people smarter than me call the perfect tense. What does that mean, pastor? Does that mean all the words are spelled correctly? No, that's not what it means. That perfect tense is telling me that this is an action that was performed one time in the past, once for all. He's talking about, now that doesn't mean that today he doesn't believe in Christ, but that means that back there, he believed back there that one day on the Damascus Road, I believed in Jesus for my salvation, and that one act of belief, it saved me. An action that was committed one time for all and does not need to be repeated. I don't have to go to bed every night and ask God to save me before I, before I go to sleep. I don't have to wake up in the morning and ask God to save me today. I did that back there on January 19th, 1977. On that day, my faith was placed in him. I believed on him that day and that belief once and for all. Now, my my faith is still in Christ and I still believe in Christ. My faith is ongoing. But what Paul is saying is I committed on that day a saving faith. In Christ, I committed my faith to him, and he saved me that one time. Why does that only happen? Why does that only have to happen once? Because you were born into the family, and you can't be moved out of it. There was a permanence to it. Does that, are you saying, Pastor, that Paul doesn't have faith in Christ today? No, not at all. Paul, Paul said we're to walk in faith. Every part of our daily routine is supposed to be wrapped up in faith, He's going to say later, whatsoever is not of faith is what? Sin. Yeah. So it's not saying we don't walk by faith, but but he's saying, I know whom I have believed. And that is a one-time act when he got saved. And just like that, Paul went from the road to hell to the road of heaven. And he doesn't have to address that anymore. Paul knew his salvation was a permanent thing. It was a lasting thing. So he uses that phrase, I know whom I have believed in this perfect tense. 
once and for all, not needing to ever be repeated. I don't have to pray to ask God to save me every day. He's done that already. You and I enjoy the same salvation through Christ. And when we came to Christ, the work he did in us has this permanence to it. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, it involved a a person, that was Jesus, a plan, that was faith, and it was a permanence. It was something that doesn't need to be repeated. And may I say this? It can't be repeated. It can't be. Once you have been saved, genuinely saved, you can't be genuinely you can't be saved again. Hold your finger here because we'll come back to it. But would you flip over to Hebrews chapter six? I think Paul, I think Paul wrote Hebrews. So if you don't, don't be mad at me. But I'm going to say things like when we turn to Hebrews, I'm going to say, well, Paul wrote right here. It's because I think he wrote the book, even though he didn't lay claim to it. But in Hebrews chapter six, this idea comes up about being saved again and again. And look what he says, Hebrews chapter 6. Let's start reading at verse number 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, that were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing, note this last phrase in verse number 6, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and to put him to an open shame. If salvation were to be lost, then Christ would have to be crucified again for you to be saved. That's what Paul is arguing here. If you can lose your salvation, then... Jesus would have to come back and be born of a virgin again. He'd have to die on the cross and rise from the dead so you could be saved again. But that's not necessary. Why? Because once you're saved, you're always saved. Then, Pastor, who is he talking about here in verses 4 and 5? Boy, those are confusing questions. In fact, it's on this particular passage of Scripture that a lot of Arminians rest rest their belief that a person can lose their salvation. So what's talking about? What's that talking about here? I don't believe this is talking about a person who has been saved. Well, Pastor, it says they have partaken, they've been made partakers of the Holy Ghost. What is that? They've tasted of the good word of God. They know about the powers of the world to come. What's that talking about? If it's not talking about somebody who's been saved and then lost it, what is that talking about right there? That's talking about someone who has been exposed to the truth have experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They've had the word of God explained to them and they understood what was being explained and then they said, no thank you. I look at verses 4 and 5 and 6, especially in verse 4 where it says it's impossible for that person to come. I look at verses 4, 5, and 6 as a very stern warning to people who are repeatedly exposed to the gospel and reject it. Listen carefully to this. I think there comes a time when a person may want to be saved, but they have so often and repeatedly rejected the spirit of God's conviction that the spirit's no longer calling them. You have to take into consideration some other verses besides Hebrews 6 verses 4, 5, and 6. What does Jesus say when he was walking the earth when he says a person that's going to come to him What's the only way a person can come to Christ? If God draws them. That's why it's so dangerous to try to argue someone into heaven. If God's not convicting them, they can't be saved. Except the Father draw them, Jesus said. They can't be saved. Well, when you put that with Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6... You have, an, you have an argument being built here that there may come a time when God's Spirit is no longer convicting a person to be saved and now it's impossible for them to be enlightened because they have rejected so often and so completely God's conviction that God's not convicting them anymore. That's the reference that you might remember. There's an example there in the book of Hebrews where Paul goes back and I said Paul, he wrote Hebrews. We can argue about it later. 
Paul goes back to the Old Testament. He says, do you remember when Esau came to his father? And he was crying. He was crying real tears and said, I want, I want that blessing for you. And Isaac said, I don't have anything to give you. Paul uses that example of him coming and crying for it and being unable to get the blessing he wanted. And he says, if you reject God long, if you reject God hard enough and long enough, there'll come a time where you come and you may want it, but the Holy Spirit's not working in you anymore. There's a deadline out there. God's, God's eternal life is, is just that. It's eternal life. But I want you to know, church, God's grace, there's a limit to it. There's a limit to his long suffering. There will come a time when God says, okay. Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. Okay, God said. What, what followed then? Destruction. What does Proverbs chapter 29 verse 1 say? He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Hebrews chapter 6 is not talking about a person who loses their salvation. Hebrews chapter 6 is talking about a person who's crossed the line and God's not convicting them anymore to be saved. Paul's conversion here, it had a a person involved, Christ. It had a plan involved, faith. And there was a permanence to it. And he said, I know it's permanent because if I can lose it to be saved again, Christ is going to have to be crucified again. And that's just not going to happen. He died once for all, and then he went to heaven and sat down. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Hebrews 2 or 3 says, he sat down because his work was done. He's not going to be crucified again. Why? Because he's provided eternal life in that one sacrifice. So that's Paul's conversion. When Paul got saved, he believed he got saved forever. I go back to that and tell you that conversion story to get to the rest of this now about his confidence in eternal life. Because you need to know what happened to Paul and what he believed happened to him in order to understand why he is so confident in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. That was Paul's conversion experience. In Christ, through faith, permanently fixed. I have believed. Perfect tense. A past action that need not be repeated again. So the church of Christ is wrong when they tell you that you can lose your salvation, but you can be saved again. Just come be baptized. You can be saved again if you lose it. Just come be baptized. They're wrong. If you're saved, you're saved forever. Let's talk about not just Paul's conversion. Let's let's talk about his confidence. Paul's confidence in all this. I'll and, and this may sound repetitive, but just forgive me. His confidence is based in the person of God. Again, I used that phrase from verse 12 back in our text. I know whom I have believed. This is a personal experience that Paul had with Jesus Christ. Paul's confidence is, listen to this, Paul's confidence is in the Lord because he knows the Lord. He knows him. There is a personal relationship that has been experienced in Paul. He has has experienced the power of God firsthand. You know the greatest argument you have in those people that you're witnessing to? You know the greatest argument you have when you talk about salvation? Tell me exactly what Christ did in you. What what does it mean for you to be justified? And you may scratch your head and say, boy, I, I don't know. But I can tell you what Christ, here's your greatest argument. I can tell you what God did for me. Your greatest argument is the change that he made in you. You know what you were before you got saved. And you know what you have been since. Somebody said, I'm not what I ought to be, but I sure thank God I, I am not what I was. One of the greatest arguments you have is the difference Christ has made in you. Paul's confidence was based in the person of God. I know what Jesus Christ did in me. I was this, and now, now I'm this. People who have assurance of salvation, have a strong personal faith in God. They believe that God's power is what saved them and what is keeping them saved. 
those who doubt whether or not God can save and keep them may have an imperfect view of exactly who God is. God says this back in the, in the book of Isaiah. He says, I am the Lord. I'm paraphrasing this. I am the Lord. If I declare it, I will do it. So when he says later in Romans, Romans 10 verse 13, he says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's the Lord who declares it. If he declares it, he's going to do it. Paul's confidence was in that person. It was based in the person of God. It was also based in the power of God. In the power of God. Back in our little verse back here in verse number 12. For I know whom I have believed. There's the person. And am persuaded that he is what? Able. There's the power of God. He has the ability to do this. He has the power to accomplish the action being discussed. What's the action being discussed? Paul's conversion. And he's saying God is able to do it. His confidence is based in God's power. His ability to do what he says. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 says that you and I are kept by the power of God. Boy, that is a great phrase, isn't it? You're kept by the power of God. I am, I am secure in Christ because of the power of God. You know what that means? That means that our salvation is only as strong as God's ability to keep us saved. How strong is God? That's how secure your salvation is. Our salvation is only as strong as God's ability to keep us saved. And if our salvation is depending on anything less than the power of God, then we can say like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we are hopelessly lost. We are of all men most miserable. But thankfully, our confidence is in not just God's person, but in his power. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 4 says this, Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. God's power, his ability to keep you saved. Paul's confidence is based in the person of God. I know whom I have believed. It's based in the power of God that he is able, and it's also based in the promises of God, the promises of God. Paul says this, that he is persuaded. He's persuaded about God's ability to preserve his soul. Faith, well, let's keep with our, our word here. Paul's confidence, his faith, is not a blind leap into the dark. You as a Christian who've been saved by grace through faith, when people say, you've just taken a blind leap, what does that mean? That, that phrase, blind leap, that means you have nothing to base your faith on. You and I both know that's not true. My faith, your faith, is based on the promises of God. It's not, it's not blind faith. I believe, number one, that God exists. Number two, I believe he can't lie. So number three, if he says something, I can fully rely on that. My faith is not blind faith. Yours is not blind faith. Don't ever accept that accusation, church. Well, you just, you just practice blind faith. Absolutely not. Blind faith would be this. Uh, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. It's going to be great after I die. Well, how do you know it? Because uh, I believe it. That's blind faith. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. It's going to be great. Why do you believe that? Because God's word said it. See, my faith isn't blind. It's based on the promises of God. Paul's confidence, he, he was persuaded because he had God's word on it. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's the promises of God. Now we're going to run quickly through this because there's 10 things I'm going to share, 10 or 11 things I'm going to share with you. So obviously, 
we're going to be quick. So write fast or like you can do like Luann Linderman. Whenever I put something up there, Luann Linderman can't write down fast enough. She's not here tonight, so we'll talk about her. She'll get her phone out. She'll take a picture of that screen. I took that from her, and when I go to these training sessions that I go like for chaplains and stuff, some of those crazy instructors, they'll flip through that PowerPoint like this. So I just start taking pictures of them. That's a great idea. So we're going to go through these kind of quickly. I'm going to, I'm going to read the promise and the fact. These all relate to salvation. Uh, that, that, here, here's what I want you to say. These are the next 11 things. I'm, I'm putting these on here to say this. What God says about salvation, you can take to the bank. You can take it to the bank. If God says it about salvation. So here's 11 things. We're not turning to these scripture verses. So write quickly, all right? We don't want to be here till 8.30. Here's the first one. Salvation is by grace, not works. You already know that. I'd write it down because it's going to fit well with these others. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Salvation is by grace, not works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Here's the second one. Everlasting means exactly what it says. There's no need for a dictionary here. Everlasting means exactly what it says. Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, the everlasting gobstopper. What does it mean? It lasts forever. John 6, 47. John 3, 16. That word is so simple. You can ask a third or fourth grader what everlasting means. They know. They just know. John 6, 47. John 3, 16. The third one. Everlasting life is a present possession. John 3, 36. You have it right now. You have eternal life right now. Number four, salvation is Christ's gift and will never be revoked. Salvation is Christ's gift. It will never be revoked. John 10, 28. What kind of giver would God be to give it to you as a gift and then take it back? Romans 6.23 says that this is the gift of God. What kind of cruel God would give you something and take it back? Salvation is Christ's gift and will never be revoked. Next, nothing can remove us from his hand. You already know, John 10, 28, 29. Nothing can remove us from his hand. I'm not saying anything you don't know. What I'm trying to do is put together all these things you know and say, look at this. This is what God consistently says. Next one. The believer is no longer condemned. Romans 8, verse 1. John 5, 24. The believer is no longer condemned. Will never be condemned, by the way. Next one. Sin is not charged to the believer in Christ. To the person genuinely saved... Sin is not charged to them. Romans 4, verses 5 through 8. Next, nothing can separate the believer from the love of God. Nothing can separate the believer from the love of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Next, the believer will never be cast out. That's Jesus' words. Dr. Manley would say it like this. That's red letters on white paper right there. That's Jesus talking. John 6, 37. He that cometh to me shall in no wise be cast out. The believer, next one, the believer has been born again. How simple is this? The believer has been born again and cannot be unborn. No wonder God picked uh, that phraseology. You can't be unborn. John 3, 3, and then also John 3, verses 5 through 7. And then the last one, I think this should be number 11 if I've hit them all. The believer is called a child of God, and the father-child relationship is one that cannot be ended. 1 John 3, 2. We've talked about this before, and I, this is a simple illustration. I have four children. Terry and I have four children together. Any one of those four kids now, they're all adults. They're all legal adults in the eyes of the court. 
they can go down to the courthouse and they can sign a piece of paper that says Mark Campbell is no longer my father. They can do that. You know what they can't do? They can't change their DNA. You know why? Because they were born to Terry and I. They, they just can't do it. No matter what the paper says, at the end of the day, if they need blood, they're going to come looking for me or Terry. They're going to start with us looking for a match for a kidney. You can't change DNA. You have been born into the family of God. You've been given a spiritual DNA. All 11 of these things, Paul is telling us all of these things. He knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God can not only save him, God can keep him. I am persuaded that he's able. That's what he says. I hope you have the same confidence that Paul does. Let's move to our last point. Paul's conversion, Paul's confidence, Paul's commitment. He says in 2 Timothy 1.12, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. To keep that which I have committed unto him. What has Paul committed to him? Well, I think the first thing he's committed is his soul. I think that's the primary interpretation of 2 Timothy 1.12 the end of that verse, Paul has committed his soul to Jesus Christ. That which I have committed. That's what I've committed to him. I have committed to Christ my eternal destiny. I'm banking on the fact that when God said, if you call on me, I'll save you. I'm banking on God can't lie about that. And so I called on him to save me and he has done that. I want to be as confident in my salvation as Paul is in his. We can be if we'll take God at his word. That which I've committed to him, Paul committed his soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing, Paul committed his service to Christ. His service. Paul gave his life, after salvation, Paul gave his life to doing what God wanted him to do. Going so far, have you ever prayed this? Going so far that he would say, I would wish myself accursed so that my brothers, the Jews, could come to God, so they could be saved. That's commitment in service right there. He committed his service to him. His total surrender to Christ was based on the fact that God had saved him with a perfect salvation that would last for all eternity. That kind of gift, eternal life, the gift that God gave him, Paul said, my reasonable service then is to present my body as a living sacrifice so that I can prove what is that holy, accept, that good, holy, acceptable will of God. If God's going to give me eternal life, forgive all my sins, wipe that record away, take me to heaven when I die, the least that I can do is say, God, here is my body, here is however long I'm going to live on this life, I'll give that to you. That's just reasonable. That's what he's saying there. You could write down, let's not turn there, but that same principle is taught in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19. Same idea. We are wasting our time serving the Lord if he can't keep us by his power. Because I'm telling you this, I can't speak for you. Mark Campbell can't do enough good things to stay saved. You, you can talk to my wife, she'll tell you, he can't. We can't do enough to stay saved. I'm not strong enough to stay saved. I have to commit this to God. I commit my soul to him, and as a result of that, with that eternal life given to me, then I commit my service to him. We love him and we serve him because of what he has done on our behalf. Paul said, that which I have committed. What, is he com what have you committed, Paul? I've committed my soul to him. That's why at the end of this book that we're reading right now, 2 Timothy, that's why he's saying at the end of this, I'm ready to be offered. Because I've committed my soul to him. I know that when, they, when I die, if they're going to come chop my head off, I know that there's a crown of life waiting for me when I die. I committed my soul to him. He committed his service to him. And the last thing that I want you to see in this verse, and then we'll, we'll wrap this up tonight, Paul committed his security to him. 
He says, that which I have committed unto him. Did you see the last phrase there in verse 12? Against that day. That's a very specific phrase. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. You can fill in without doing just injustice to scripture against judgment day. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about that day, the day of the Lord. He's talking about when all things are coming to an end, when the books are going to be opened, I'm confident that I can commit all of this to him so that at judgment day, I'm still going to be found righteous because he's given me eternal life. He knows that when that day comes, he'd be found still in Christ. If you're found in Adam, you're hosed on that day. That's not a very theological way to put it, but that's it. You come to that day and you're in Adam, it's going to be bad. And it's going to be bad for eternity. But if you're in Christ, and Paul was convinced he was, it's going to be great. Paul knew when that day came, he was going to be found in Jesus, regardless of what happened to him down here. He was going to be found in Christ. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9 says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. I have the righteousness of God, and I've got it against that day. I have that confidence. You can have that confidence that against that day, everything you've committed to him will be kept. Your soul, your service, your security. Paul says, I'm, count, I'm, count, I'm living my life in such a way to show you I am fully persuaded God's able to keep this against that day. All the things we do down here, we're, we're doing them in a temporal realm, but we can do them with an eternal perspective. That's where Paul lived his life. Paul did what he did because that day was coming. Paul said what he said. He wrote what he wrote. He went where he went because that day is coming. I don't remember when he taught it, but Dr. Manley taught a message to our, he preached a message to our church one time, and I think it was on a Sunday night, and it was out of 3 John, and that was one of, or, or 1 John 3, rather, and that was one of the best messages I've heard Doc preach. It's one of his, his most memorable to me, but the whole point of that message was doing what we do in light of eternity, and that's where Paul was living. We have to be honest here. There's no way that we can present tonight in the hour that we've had together, there's no way to present an in-depth study on the doctrine of eternal security. But as a church family, we need to know that we serve and we have been saved by a God who is fully able to keep us against that day. Be convinced of that. So here's my closing thought. I think this is what this is the closing thought on the screen. If you have ever been genuinely born again, if that has happened, genuinely is the key word, You can rest assured that you are still saved and that God will take you safely home to heaven when you leave this world. Regardless of what the devil or the world or the flesh does, your three enemies, regardless of what they do, God still saves. Hebrews 7, God still saves, I love this phrase, to the uttermost. It means you ain't getting more saved than you are right now. That's good East Tennessee for uttermost. Listen to Paul's words in Hebrews 7.25. Wherefore, he, God, is able to save them to the uttermost that come, to, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ can save you and he can save me to the uttermost. He has started a great thing in you. And he's going to finish that thing. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 says this. Being confident of this very thing. Paul is taking your focus and he's pointing it down to one thing. This is a funnel verse. Being confident of this very thing. What thing, Paul? 
What one thing are you talking about right here? That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That one thing. I'm confident of this one thing. There's a lot of things Paul's saying this. There's a lot of things in this world I don't know. But I'm confident of this. He started this work in me. He's going to finish it in me. And then he brings that thing up again, doesn't he? Until the day of Jesus Christ. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Did you notice how, do you notice how many songs that we sing, the hymns? Do you notice how many songs the last verse is always pointing you to that day? I didn't do this on purpose, but at least two of the three songs that we sang tonight, the fourth verse that Brother Jeff led us in, it's talking about the coming of Christ. It's talking about the end. We, we ought to live our lives in light of that end that is coming. What God, what God is doing in us, he's doing for that day. Everything's pointing to that day. Paul said, I'm convinced that those things I've committed unto him, my soul being the primary thing, I've committed, I'm convinced he's going to keep it till that day. You can be absolutely sure of the salvation you have. God goes through, God goes through great lengths to use words and illustrations and pictures to point out the fact that once you're his child, he is not turning you loose. And listen, your power is not greater than God. People say, well, it says no man can pluck them out of my hand, but I can jump out of God's hand. Are you telling me really that your ability to jump out is better than God or bigger than God's ability to keep you in his hand? You're, you're stronger than God? Don't let people tell you that. When, when you take them to John 10, it says, no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. If they come at you and say, well, but I can jump out, challenge them on that. Because they're just walking in pride right there, aren't they? Their ability to jump out is greater than God's ability to keep? Whew, you better watch. You and I better watch where we don't, we don't get on that trail of thought. Church, you've been given a wonderful gift in salvation. I've been given a, 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 a tremendous gift in salvation. And we're never going to lose it. You come to Christ, he'll give you eternal life, Romans says, as a gift. So as a gift. That's how good God is. That life that he gives you is everlasting life. He goes again and again and again. See, you're not going to be under condemnation. That's why I'm not a mid-tribulationist. I'm a pre-tribulation. I, I think the rapture is going to take pre-trib. There's no condemnation. Therefore, there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. None at all. Not even a little bit. Not even three and a half years worth. No, none of it. God's given you and I a great gift. It's forever. You can't lose it. You didn't earn it. And you can't do anything to lose it. It's a gift of God. It's eternal. It's everlasting. And you're in the family. And I'm in the family. If a person is genuinely saved, they're going to be genuinely saved forever. That's the message of the word of God. That's, that's, why, I don't, I, that's why I don't believe in the ability to lose it. I've got good friends. I've, I've got dear friends that believe you can lose your salvation. Dear friends. I I just, I have too much confidence in God's ability and in God's power and in who he is to think that I could ever lose it or do anything. I didn't do anything to earn it, so I can't do anything to lose it. Now, if I had to earn it, absolutely. If I had to earn that salvation, then absolutely I could dis-earn it. But I didn't, so I can't. Once saved always saved. Can God really keep you saved? Absolutely, yes, he can. Aren't you thankful for that? Let's go home tonight, can we? Let's stand together. Father, you have given us your word on this topic. It is impossible for you to lie. The scripture says you are the God that cannot lie. 
And so when you promised us this life by grace, through faith, we accept it. And Lord, I am so thankful for it. Help us as, as Faith Baptist Church, as Christians who believe in your word, as those who have been genuinely saved, help us, God, to be convinced of this truth and to be able to compassionately share it with people who struggle with it. And Lord, there are an awful lot of people in this world trying to earn their way to heaven. The Hindus do that. The Muslims do that. The Roman Catholics do that. People in the Church of Christ and the Jehovah's Witness cult, they believe that. And here we sit with the wonderful treasure of the gospel that says it's all by grace and not by works. And they don't have to do anything except put their faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to be generous in sharing that message with people that you've come to save and to keep them until that day. Thank you for giving us your word. May we read it and meditate in it and study it and know it so that when we get asked why we believe what we believe, we'll be able, like Peter said, we'll be ready to give an answer to those folks. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you, church. It's good to see you tonight. Take that word and share it with somebody this week who needs it. All right? We'll see you on Wednesday, Lord willing.